Machine. We're so excited to bring you our third episode, which is arriving after an admittedly lengthy hiatus. Though, if the saying about absence making the heart grow fonder is true, you guys are gonna love it. I'm here with Noah and Rob, and we're going to share with each other and with you some cool facts that we've gathered around this episode's theme, what's in a name. Specifically, what's in our names. Basically, each of our stories have a connection to our names, so you're going to hear about various sorts of Rob's, Noah's, and Emily's that are likely more interesting but optimistically less attractive than the ones doing the storytelling. And before we jump in, I'll just plug our social media. We are Fax Machine Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and Fax Machine Podcast on Facebook. Check us out. Thanks, Rob. The format of this episode will be the same as our previous, with an exchange of three facts followed by a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. And with that, we'll get started with our first fact from Rob. Take it away. So this week I learned that as of the last U.S. Census, there were 11,518 U.S. citizens who shared a name with one Confederate general. Who is it? <laughs> it is Robert E. Lee. Oh, Come it's on named down. after Rob. <laughs> yes, that's right. There we go. That's my name. Yeah, it is, it is not... Jefferson Davis. There are 65 Jefferson Davises, according to the U.S. Census. It is not Stonewall Jackson. There are, in fact, four Stonewall Jacksons walking around the United States right now. I hope they're all goalies. Alaska. They're all in Alaska. No. I'm sure that information is available. I probably could have. There's actually... So I'll tell you how I know this. Um, There's a website... That's called HowManyOfMe.com. It's an interesting resource because it, it looks through the previous census data, and you can search by first name, last name, or both. And you can even search by state and figure out, like, how many of me live in my district, in my state. Um, but it lets you also conduct some really interesting searches. So I was able to look up a few really common names, including those other Confederate generals. Uh, as of today, there are no Adolf Hitlers in the United States. We did it! Yeah! <laughs> After much travail, <laughs> not a single one left. Um, but there are, according to this, up to 121 people who have the surname Hitler in the United States, hmm. which I think is a, a fairly tough lot in life. Yeah. <laughs> but following along that line, we're pretty good at not having fascist dictators. There, there are no Joseph Stalins uh, in the United States. Uh, conversely, there are also no Winston Churchills in the United States. Hmm. But uh, at current times, there are 12 Manuel Noriegas running around the United States. <laughs> and I think, I think this was really interesting. Um, there's not a single Franklin Roosevelt left in the United States, but there are 12 Roosevelt Franklins. Wow. <laughs> That's really interesting. There are 461 George Bushes mm-hmm. out there in the United States right now, only two of which have been president. No. So, All right. so not you, this time. When, when you do the math, that's that, not a terrible ratio. No, one in one in two hundred. There's a one in two hundred chance that George Bush, you know, was president. That's pretty pretty. You can't say that about any of your other friends. I think. That's true. Um, there's only one LeBron James, as we all know. Is he the Ohio Lander? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. There can only be one. <laughs> 
Isn't he though? <laughs> All right, go on. Sorry. Yeah. So the one, there's the one and only LeBron James. But uh, at this time, there are around 160 James LeBrons oh. in the United States who benefit from the from the jerseys uh, tremendously. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> According to my research, there are in, in the order of 20 or so Emily Costas in the United States. So that's why I can't get a Gmail. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Emily Costa, 27. <laughs> uh, but you may be happy to find out there are no Noah Guybersons. <laughs> Yeah. Like actually, uh, I try to keep a low profile. Yeah. <laughs> so if if that was redacted when this comes out, folks, that's why. <laughs> but unlike you, Noah, and I, I suppose Hitler, uh, there, oh, whoa. <laughs> whoa. <laughs> there are there are many Robert God. Lees out there. I, there are no other parallels I like to draw. Oh except, my God. <laughs> or we could say. Uh, Unlike you, Noah, and Franklin Roosevelt. Okay, thank you. <laughs> there are no, there are many Robert Lees out there, and that's because of many factors. One, Robert is currently the third most popular first name in the United States. Lee is one of the most popular last names. Uh, the reason Lee is such a popular last name is actually interesting. It's uh, it draws from many different ethnic and racial groups. So the the breakdown, the demographics are uh, Lees in the United States are about forty percent Caucasians. Forty uh, percent Asian mainlanders, fifteen percent Pacific Islanders, and about five percent other. Hmm. Um, so it, it draws from populations all around the world who have a last name Lee, uh, and so there are eleven thousand Robert Lees running around. Uh, some of which are named kind of in honor of Robert E. Lee. Some of which uh, completely unaware that there was a Confederate general <laughs> named Robert E. Lee. Uh, and this was the state of our education system. <laughs> it speaks to a much bigger problem. <laughs> Let me tell you, in Texas, growing up in the, you know, <laughs> going to public high school in Texas, that was not a problem we had, was not knowing about Confederate generals. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm worse off for it, but. <laughs> there's, there's a great article in The Atlantic um, that was spurred on some public events a few years ago that asked the question, what is it like being named Robert Lee in the modern United States? And it, it detailed a few individuals. It was a far from exhaustive survey of Robert Lee's. Um, but it tells kind of anecdotal stories of Robert Lee's in Starbucks or going to college and having people ask, hey, what, what's your middle initial? And then be like, who are you? Like, why, why do you care? None Not, of your business. That raises a good point, though, because if you were a Rob, a Robert Lee who had a middle initial, why wouldn't you just go by your middle name? It's true. Like, I mean, I'm, maybe maybe that wouldn't occur to some people, but that's I'm just saying like, you could do that. That's a, that's like, a good If you were Robert out, yeah. Eric mm-hmm. Lee... I think you'd probably be better off just going by Eric Lee. <laughs> yeah. But I, so even historians say the reason that we know him as Robert E. Lee is because 150 years ago, there's still a lot of Robert Lees. It was like super convenient. Even at West Point, there were probably several Robert Lees in like any cadet class. Oh, do you think that, Rob? Because I happen to have actually looked up every <laughs> class here at West Point, found Robert oh E. Lee's. And I can tell you that there are no Robert E. Lee's in his class, but there is a Catharinus Putnam Buckingham, an Ormsby McKnight Mitchell, a Lancaster P. Lupton, and uh, consistent listeners to our podcast will enjoy Thomas S. Words, <laughs> or, or Swords, not Thomas Shit. Oh, Thomas his name is Thomas S. Words, okay? All right, all right. Um, and also, really interestingly, a John F. Kennedy, 
who it is listed on this website died of disease. <laughs> so, for conspiracy theorists, that's what happened to John F. Kennedy. He, he died of disease. Actually, to expand upon that even further, I too looked up Robert E. Lee's class roster really? at West Point. Wow. <laughs> it seemed relevant. It seemed relevant. Um, and actually, in my case, honed in on another classmate of his named Charles Mason. So Charles Mason and Robert E. Lee had a pretty historically documented rivalry at West Point. Um, in the most obvious way, Charles Mason was from New York, and of course Robert E. Lee was from Virginia, so that kind of recapitulated the uh, northern-southern rivalry that was already happening at the time, as we just discussed. But in addition, uh, the two graduated neck and neck, uh, with Mason actually beating out Robert E. Lee at, as top of their class by a fairly narrow margin. Um, so to clarify just how narrow this actually is, uh, Charles Mason graduated with an overall score of 1,995 and a half points out of a possible total 2,000 points, wow. um, mm -hmm. compared to Robert E. Lee's 1,966 and a half points. So, so I will say that Mason and Lee were tied uh, for some very important courses, including um, artillery, tactics, and conduct. Um, but overall, Mason uh, scored better in multiple courses, with the exception, and I will say to me this is quite vindicating, of French. <laughs> in which Charles Mason lost four and a half marks. But you know what? It's totally fine. It's not a problem. Um, I will say to me the most impressive thing about this is that uh, Charles Mason and Robert E. Lee to this day still have the two highest graduation point scores that were ever attained at West Point. Um, and also interesting to mention, the third highest score after them was uh, earned by Douglas MacArthur, wow. whom you guys may have also heard of. And all I have left, uh, because I said Lee is a very common last name, I actually looked up some of the most common last names in the United States, and I was actually able to break it down by state. And I think there's kind of this trope we're all familiar with that Smith is like the most common last name. And it, it pretty much, it bears out. It really, really is. Uh, and in fact, if you look, there are only three, oh, sorry, there are only five states in the United States where Smith is not one of the three most popular names. So uh, state number one, the first state uh, does not have Smith as one of the top three last names because of the presence of so many Nordic names. But Minnesota. Minnesota. Yes. Very nice. Whoa. That Team was quick. effort. Oh yeah. Now totally. in a similar uh, in a similar way, this state also is very heavily influenced by Nordic last names. Although one of its major cities was named after a Prussian. Oh, it's North Dakota. Bismarck. Sure. There oh, it is. of course. Yeah. Yep. There we go. Nice. You All can right. answer the next one. <laughs> it's fine. I'm quite weak in geography, so feel free to take the reins. <laughs> All right. Uh, this next state has uh, names that do not hearken from Europe. They hearken from another area in the world. That's top three names. And it is famous uh, in the last few years for having notoriously high gas emission standards that have kind of throttled the entire U.S. gas emissions, uh, including the Obama-era gas emissions. Uh, on cars and vehicles. So this is a state that is extremely progressive on automaker. Um, California? That's California. Okay. Very nice. <laughs> nice. Well done. All right. The three names there, uh, Garcia, Hernandez, and Lopez, the top three names in California. What about Texas? Uh, Texas? Smith is in there, but it's Smith? between Garcia and Martinez. Okay. okay. Yeah. Interesting. Pertinent to that information, that will help you with this next state. This next state that does not contain Smith in the top three names is one of four states in the United States that begins with the same word. Uh, so it'd be new, so right? New. I suppose so. 
Uh, New Mexico? Yeah, that's the one. Nice. Martinez, Garcia, and Chavez, your top three. All right. And this fifth state, interestingly, um, it has an influence of last names from an entirely different part of the world. It's got to be Hawaii. That it is. Okay. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Just inflection alone carried yeah. that close. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, they're Lee, Wong, and Kim, the nice. three most popular last names oh, in Hawaii. All right, so thanks very much, Rob. Noah, what have you got for us? All right, thanks, Emily. This week I learned that according to the Bible, Noah invented wine and was the first person to have ever been drunk. And not just drunk, like really sloppy drunk. There are, in fact, whole discourses (laughs) from theologians throughout history debating whether his drunkenness was a sin since he had no idea what would happen. Oh, that's a good point. (laughs) For example, a 4th century archbishop of uh, Constantinople excused Noah's behavior as defensible because as the first human to taste wine, he would not have known its effects. And he wrote, through ignorance and inexperience of the proper amount to drink, he fell into a drunken stupor. Okay, so I'm going to tell the story of Noah and how he got drunk for the first time in human history, allegedly. Um, And so let's set the scene. In Genesis, God says, quote, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made him. Okay? (laughs) This is a really dark story, if you think about it. And as a kid, being read these stories or seeing them in, like, coloring books, I was apparently totally cool with the idea that all of humanity was bad, so now obviously everyone had to go except for this one guy and his family. Apparently I was distracted by the rainbows. Like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. But think of how good Noah had to be. Like yeah, He was, like, so yeah. good. How good is this guy? guy. <laughs> but most people know what happens next. I mean, God washes everything away with a big old flood and starts over, but he thinks Noah's pretty cool, so he spares him and his family and then tells them to save all the animals. So this is how it goes in the Bible. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 19 through 22, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive. Noah did this. Then can we, can we yeah. clarify why there's a separate category for creeping things? Like what, what okay. exactly does that entail? <laughs> it's a good point. It's like you know walking and like that other kind some of walking that's walk, gross. Some things swim and then some things just creep. <laughs> also, like I've always had this issue is that they're on a boat for forty days. You bring two lions and two zebras, and you think you're gonna leave the boat with two zebras? <laughs> like whose idea is that? Yeah. Well, didn't know the riddle with the lions. It's interesting that you say that because clearly, I mean, he just said, of all the birds, bring two kinds, male and female. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of all the creeping things, which I'm pretty sure just means things that walk. I don't know. That is a weird phrasing. Insects. Things that walk on the ground. (laughs) And insects. Probably that was their way of saying everything. Anything that moves along the ground. Arthropods are a huge part of the biomass. You're so right. You're so right. Okay. By Job, I think we've got it. <laughs> but let's not distract from the story of the Bible by doing things that are actually relevant to real life. Um, but they very clearly are saying two of every kind, and that's the story that people remember. All right. But then, like three sentences later, then God says, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, 
don't know what that means, the male and its mate. <laughs> and seven pairs, pairs of the birds of the air also, male and female, to keep their kind alive on the face of all the earth. Okay? Huh. So right after he says, get two of all the things, okay? That's pretty straightforward. You can do that male and female mating pairs. That's pretty clear. You can imagine that Noah went off and he was searching for all the things. He got all the animals. He dug into little burrows to get the animals underground. He chased down all the really fast animals. He just picked up the arthropods. They were easy. <laughs> he probably invented He probably invented some early version of like a flying machine so he could go capture all of the birds, Okay. However, he gets done with this. It probably took him years, okay? It's not specified, <laughs> right? And then God says, take with you seven pairs of all the animals that you got, not just one pair, all right? And he gave him seven days. So the flood finally comes, and then after a few months, it ends up subsiding, and everybody's pretty stoked. Um, and so in addition to a bunch of sacrifices, Noah plants a vineyard and then drinks some of the wine that comes out of that vineyard, okay? So then it says in Genesis uh, chapter 9, verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. All right. Here's where it gets super weird. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bracing ourselves. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Yepheth. In the next verse, Genesis chapter 9, verse 22 and 23, it says, And Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Yepheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So It's respectful. Okay. Yeah. So basically what just happened was his son Ham went in, saw that his father was really naked and just drunk and passed out, went back out and told other people. So the next chapters of uh, Genesis are known as the curse of Ham. And when I first saw that term, the curse of Ham, <laughs> I wrote in my notes, this sounds funny, look it up later. <laughs> okay? Turns out it's not funny at all. It is, in oh, fact, no. super gross and depressing. Okay, That's why it's not on Denny's menus. Exactly. <laughs> so... Uh, in the next like couple verses, it says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Ham is cursed. Lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and then he died. Oh. You can't complain. Yeah. It's not a bad... Well, actually, no, he lived a total of 950 years. After the flood... He was quite old at the time of the flood. According to the Bible, Noah is the first to drink wine and the first to discover its intoxicating properties... After reading this, I set out to find whether this is historically accurate, whether this ancient story passed down over thousands and thousands of years may give us some sense of the time in which our ancestors discovered for the first time what K.A. Matthews called a, quote, pleasant relief for man from the toilsome work of the crop. And according to archaeologists, it turns out it's not even close. <laughs> but let's break it down. Okay, so estimates of biblical chronology place the Great Flood around 2500 BCE. But it turns out that there are numerous archaeological sites in Greece, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Syria, Turkey, and the Caucasus from around that time and from much, much earlier where they found evidence of alcoholic beverages. But the oldest of all comes from Zhahu, China, dated as far back as 7000 BCE over 9,000 years ago. It is about as far away, 4,500 years from the supposed time of the story of Noah as we are to the story of Noah now. Wow. Okay? Holy cow. 
So what kind of alcohol was this, you ask? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, (laughs) it was a mix of a lot of things. It was made of rice, grapes, hawthorn berries, and honey. It had the properties of a beer and of a wine. It was probably very chunky. (laughs) (laughs) It uh, likely necessitated the use of a straw, as did many ancient beverages. This and other ancient alcohols at many other sites were discovered by a team led by Professor Pat McGovern, the scientific director of the Biomolecular Archaeology Project for Cuisine, Fermented Beverages, and Health at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. He is also known, pleasingly, as the Indiana Jones of ancient ales, wines, and extreme beverages. <laughs> extreme beverages. Awesome. Extreme. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing to think that we can actually figure out what the components of an ancient cocktail were. But Dr. McGovern and his team were able to do so by analyzing the molecules left behind in pottery and other containers that housed these concoctions. So I read his group's paper about this in the journal uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, as it is affectionately (laughs) known among us scientists. Um, And they do some pretty cool stuff to try to figure out what kind of molecules were in these containers and then to assign those molecules to the fruit or plant or wherever they came from. One technique they use is called either gas or liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry, in which a sample of unknown composition, lots of different molecules all mixed up, go through a process of separation by size or by some other property. Then you can look at each molecule individually and see if you can recognize what are known as, quote, fingerprint compounds that are associated with specific natural products, particularly those that are or were available in that region. So he and his team did this, and then they did something even cooler. Along with Dogfish Head Brewery in Delaware, they recreated this alcoholic beverage and made it available under the name Chateau Jeho, <laughs> which was actually rated as too drinkable by the renowned beer reviewer Michael Jackson. No, not that one. <laughs> different, different one. And apparently it tastes like, quote, a mead, sake, wine, and cider combined, which honestly, all those sound really good. I can't imagine that any of those would be bad in combination. And that's, that's a truly amazing bit of scientists engaging with the public and that they made this esoteric aspect of archaeology feel real and important. Because one thing that has united almost all peoples the world over throughout history, from Jahu to the Fax Machine podcast, has been the sheer enjoyment of the shared experience of drinking alcohol, for better or worse. And it's really remarkable that in this small way, we can step into the lives of people who lived over 9,000 years ago and offer them a toast. So, cheers to that. Cheers. So, based on this fact, I found a few other things, not necessarily invented by Noah, but that were invented in the Bible, in the, in the text of the Bible. And I thought these were really cool. Um, so, I'll give you a few that I found. Uh, one, many times, actually, it's referenced that there, there are lyres and harps and flutes, uh, but at one point in the Bible, it says that David invented, King David, of like that David, King David invented all the other instruments, just kind of <laughs> in, a, in a universal kind of catch-all. And then many times after, it's quoted as saying like, and they played harps, lutes, trumpets, which apparently David did not invent because they get added to the list later, but they're not his. And then all the instruments David created. <laughs> And so he was just the guy who made every instrument. Actually, it's funny you say that because, you know, the site where the oldest alcoholic beverage was found, 
Um, they actually found also the earliest example of a playable musical instrument that has ever been found. Wow. And the flutes were carved from the wing bone of the red-crowned crane what? with five to eight holes capable of producing the pentatonic scale that traditional Chinese music uh, is derived from. Oh, wow. Oh, Isn't that really so interesting? Cool. So actually at this yeah. site, they found a ton of things that were like, I mean, not just like the alcohol, but it was all kinds of things like musical instruments and, you know, like depictions of their society and some in- indications of what the ritual is were like um so it was a really rich discovery found like along the yellow river in china that is wild yeah uh, one other really good story i liked of inventions in the bible was this this king the jewish king uzziah uh and he was credited with in- inventing all the engines of war what about tanks yeah i mean <laughs> explicitly they're called towers that with, okay. with propelling objects okay which might be a very Kind of crude tank. Loose definition. <laughs> uh, but it included things that, that threw spears, arrows, and launched catapults. Or la- launched zones as from catapults. But if, you, but if you think about it, those are kind of like, those are the standards of warfare for thousands of years. Like, it doesn't get much better. And so it's written in this verse of the Bible that he gained much fame for doing this. Because he became king when he was 16. And shortly thereafter, he used this to conquer many other peoples, including the Ammonites, the Arabs, other surrounding regions. Um, and so it sounds to me like this guy was like a third century BC Tony Stark. <laughs> and he inherits great wealth. He uses it to build weapons and he's a hero. And I make these comparisons to Tony Stark because not only everything I've already said, but also he became too proud, too cocky. He walked into the temple and he wanted to burn incense, which you are not allowed to do. So no, no. Yeah, <laughs> unless you're a priest. And so in doing so, he was smitten, smitten. by God. <laughs> he was smitten? Yeah. Well, so, was, so, wait. Not like smitten. Wait. <laughs> God is, is in it. The <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Like smote? Hang on. Smoted? Yeah, he, okay. It's like, you know, the thing where God gets really mad at you. Okay. Smited? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so, all right. So, I, I, I pulled it up uh, off of oh. venerabledictionary.com. Um, and I'm seeing smote. Okay. Um, obsolete forms for the past tense include smit, also smitten, so we'll count it. Um, oh, hey. Yeah. Okay. And okay. apparently... You're obsolete. That's yeah. fine. I'm very <laughs> obsolete. Actually, and apparently smat, which I think is my favorite. <laughs> okay. Just like, so if you could just say that again. Then smat. <laughs> so he got smat by God. Okay. Yep. Smat by God. He yep. walked in the temple. He was that's the one. Burning incense. That's a no-no. Smat. He yeah. was smat. Okay, then what happened? That's, that's, that's so so he's, he survived this smattening. Smat, yeah. yeah. The smattening. <laughs> the smattening. <laughs> and he, but he was, he, um, f- was cursed with leprosy. But so he, uh, he fell from grace. And so the people at the time, for this disease to happen, were like, well, what did this guy do? This was pretty serious for, for a king to get leprosy. And they're like, well, pride, definitely pride. And it just kind of built into that. So two quick things uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, I think these are the most kind of human of the inventions or kind of observations of inventions in the Bible. Um, the first is <laughs> just this this really kind of timely thought that uh, well, it's just a quote. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? Is it new? For everything is from a time before which. <laughs> Basically <laughs> saying, no, we already made everything. <laughs> there are no inventions left. <laughs> And then that was in the first <laughs> chapter. In the seventh chapter, it was just this absolutely on-point observation that I thought was hilarious. And I still don't know what it means exactly. But it says, Know that God made men upright, but they've sought many devices. And when you think about it, it's it's re- and it's vague, but it means like, isn't it strange 
that we stand up by God's design, but we made so many things to sit on. <laughs> that is really, really good. And it's like, yeah, wow. that's a great point. <laughs> God's like, yeah. oh, come on. It's like, guys, I want, I want you to stand for this. Do you have any idea how long I worked on this? <laughs> like one day. <laughs> so speaking of somewhat biblical views um, on alcoholic overindulgence as a social vice, um, I actually looked a little bit into winemaking um, and consumption during Prohibition in the U.S. Uh. Um, and one thing that immediately popped out to me is quite surprising, um, is that the American wine industry actually boomed during Prohibition. Um, notably, California growers increased their stakes of land by 700% within the first five wow. years of its enactment. So it seems as if they they were not part of this ban. Well, so they were, but they were creative with their product. There were a few loopholes uh, included under the Volstead Act, which established Prohibition, essentially, um, that could be exploited to actually stay drinking during Prohibition, um, including prescriptions. Um, so alcohol at the time could be prescribed for anything ranging from asthma to diabetes to snake bites. Um, there are plenty of cases of physicians that took advantage of this fact to make a pretty penny. Um, also, religious sacraments were exempt. Um, and in fact, there are records of congregation numbers skyrocketing <laughs> during this period. Um, and also, multiple people will be self-proclaiming themselves to be rabbis, so that way they can obtain wine to distribute to um, their followers for the Sabbath and religious practices at home. Those people clearly have never been to church before because <laughs> you don't get it's enough not wine. worth it. No. <laughs> but desperate times. <laughs> right? That's true. Um, but notably... Like you could keep coming back around in the line. Just <laughs> circle the other line. The, the Eucharist line. just constitutes half the Mass. Or, just or you around. just go first and drink the whole thing. <laughs> Um, but notably, there was also a lack of restrictions on unfermented grape juice. And this is what winemakers actually took advantage of. Um, so essentially, a lot of vineyards, once Prohibition kicked in, preemptively shut down because they were like, well, there goes our bread and butter, we can't make wine anymore. But those that actually maintained and came to dominate the market, including very well-known brands nowadays like Beringer and, and Robert Mondavi, um, actually developed this new product called Wine Bricks. Um, and essentially what they were was just grape juice uh, that was condensed and concentrated into these dry bricks that could then be dropped into water mm. and dissolved into grape wow. juice. Oh, DIY grape juice. <laughs> yes. But uh, the laws at the time dictated that grapes could only be grown and sold for non-alcoholic consumption under this loophole. Um, so any grower that knowingly sold their grapes for alcoholic production would be prosecuted. But, and here's the loophole, as long as the grower specified that their product was not to be used for alcoholic production, they'd be in the clear. So basically, as I mentioned, uh, a couple of vineyards took to making these wine blocks and put labels on them that gave careful instructions on dissolving the bricks in a gallon of water and very strict warnings that if you leave that grape juice in a cool cupboard for 21 days, it would turn into wine. <laughs> now, so you should not you, do that. Don't you even Wink. think about doing this. <laughs> yep. Precisely. It would turn to alcohol, and we all know that's illegal and therefore bad. <laughs> exactly. And based on that predication, yeah, some vineyards actually flourished during Prohibition. So, uh, Were any of them caught? Uh, as far as I read, um, none of the vineyards that participated in this were prosecuted. So I dare say they exploited this loophole quite fruitfully. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Okay, so I guess I'm up. 
My fact for this episode is that world-renowned Ceylon tea uh, exists because of a blight that wiped out the Sri Lankan coffee industry. The name of that blight, scientifically, uh, is Himalaya vistatrix, but colloquially, among planters, it was referred to as Devastating Emily. That's your name. That is my name. <laughs> so, right. You guys focus on people, I focused on a fungus. <laughs> but to give a little bit of background, coffee as a plant has actually been around and been grown in Sri Lanka for centuries. Um, and it was likely brought over through early trade with the Arabs and Persians. But the cultivation of coffee for beverage use specifically um, was actually started by the Dutch East India Company in the late 18th century and then grew into a national enterprise in the 1830s. And during that period, plantations cropped up in the hills around uh, Kandy, which is a hilly region um, in central Sri Lanka. And it actually continued to the extent that by 1840, the term coffee rush was applied to describe the flood of foreign investors that were coming into the region to make their fortune in coffee, much like the gold rush. I get a coffee rush every morning. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So is that describing the development of capitalism in my morning? Well... I don't know. How do you feel after you have your coffee? Very, very constructive. <laughs> do you, do you purchase more things? <laughs> Regardless, by 1860, Sri Lanka, along with Indonesia and Brazil, was one of the world's major coffee producers. That is until 1869, when disaster struck in the form of devastating Emily. It's also known as coffee leaf rust, and it's a fungal parasite, which is doubly disgusting. A fungus and a parasite, uh, yeah. Puts the fun in fungus. There you go. <laughs> Plant diseases have, like, just universally the grossest names. Because, like, the, the other ones I looked up, they were, mm-hmm. they're blots, cankers, rots, rusts, and wilts. And they oh, all God. just have that really heinous sound to them. Yeah. So coffee leaf rust grows on the leaves of coffee plants, essentially sapping their nutrients and eventually killing them. And indeed, that's exactly what happened in Sri Lanka with the onset of this blight in 1869. It was nicknamed Devastating Emily because it was, in fact, devastating. Uh, Many planters found their crops being totally wiped out, which in their case either necessitated going bankrupt or trying to repurpose their land for another industry. And indeed, within 15 years of its onset, the coffee industry in Sri Lanka was basically gone. To contextualize this, at its peak in 1870, coffee plantations covered 275,000 acres, and by 1900, they covered 11,000. That is a 96% decrease. However, uh, there was one guy in Sri Lanka who actually had a leg up in the wake of this disaster, and his name was James Taylor, and no, not that James Taylor. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Not that Michael Jackson, not that James Taylor. (laughs) What are we doing here? We're not talking about Michael Jackson or James Taylor. (laughs) Those are two of easily the most interesting people in the world. I'm certain. I mean, by terms of record sales. (laughs) (laughs) But this James Taylor was pretty interesting in his own right. He basically grew up in Scotland and opted to sail to Sri Lanka. As one does. At age 17. As As one does. In your angsty teenage years, it's what you do. But actually to work as the assistant to the owner of a coffee plantation uh, near Candy. He soon came to manage that plantation and actually spent some time in Darjeeling to learn tea cultivation practices. And then upon returning, he started growing tea um, along the roads and paths within that plantation, kind of honing his craft, um, experimenting with various strains of Chinese and Assam tea plants, and even developing new specialized machinery to dry and roll tea leaves. So this guy was very much 
a perfectionist in terms of introducing this craft to the region and also honing it to make the best quality tea possible. Quality. <laughs> hey, <laughs> there you are. So by the time devastating Emily began, well, devastating things, James Taylor actually had 20 acres of tea already growing, so coffee farmers basically flocked to him to learn his now perfected tea growing techniques. And thus the salon tea industry was born. From there on, the first shipment of salon tea to London occurred in 1873. It actually reached America in the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. And the rest is history. To this day, tea constitutes 2% of the Sri Lankan GDP, and they are the world's fourth largest producer. Um, it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for that fungus. Were, if it weren't for, stupid it were for Emily's <laughs> fungus. <laughs> for devastating Emily, precisely. Another character that I'd actually like to mention in this story is Sir Thomas Lipton, and yes, that Lipton. Mm. Uh, so he also sailed to America as a young man at the age of 14, where he spent five years working a bunch of very odd jobs all over the country, including on a tobacco plantation in Virginia as an accountant um, in South Carolina, a door-to-door salesman in New Orleans, a farmhand in New Jersey, and then finally landing a position as a grocery assistant and later a manager in New York City. Right, so notably, during his stint in New York, he learned all sorts of savvy techniques with regards to presenting merchandise and running a store in a way that appeals to customers. And then he returned to Scotland and actually opened up first his own shop, and then over time, essentially the first chain of grocery stores in Scotland and then in Britain, um, and then all over using these same techniques that he learned um, during his stint in America. He ended up opening up to 300 stores, which was pretty impressive in its time. And actually shortly after that, went on holiday to Australia and he fortuitously stopped over in Sri Lanka with perfect timing with regards to the coffee blade. So when he showed up, a bunch of plantations were for sale for quite cheaply. So he bought a couple and began working with James Taylor, who I referenced a little while ago, and thus built the Lipton Tea Empire. However, uh, although his legacy is most often associated with tea, it's you know, literally his name. He was also known for a few other things, my favorite of which is being really, really bad at sailing. Um, so Something he, we share in common. Right? I would drown. <laughs> that's, I would say this is the worst you can be at sailing. So he's not the he worst at sailing. He's he didn't not drown. the worst. Um, but he is remembered as being the quote-unquote most persistent challenger um, in the America's Cup sailing race, which actually is still occurring to this day, but had its heyday in the U.S. Um, when it was held in New York mostly and in Rhode Island throughout the 1920s. Challengers included familiar names like the Vanderbilts and John Pierpont Morgan, um, and also actually Ted Turner in 1977. He won oh. uh, the America's Cup in that year. Um, basically, it involved each of these magnates trying to one-up each other um, by having the most high-tech yachts built and then hiring the best sailors to commandeer them in these races. So Sir Thomas Lipton competed five times over 30 years using yachts that were called Shamrock, iterations one through five, and lost every single time. <laughs> but he was praised uh, and known for his good sportsmanship as a consequence. Um, so he basically won the first Billionaire Spirit Award. <laughs> essentially. 
<laughs> Essentially. And although this endeavor cost him millions of dollars, the moniker that he earned as being a lovable loser actually popularized his tea <laughs> in the U.S. And indeed, after his last race, um, he was awarded a different cup, not the America's Cup, that was made specially for him, earning the title of the best of all losers. Um, and actually, That's my so cute. <laughs> that is Very so cute, backhanded. But still, but it gets better. So regarding this special cup, Harold Vanderbilt, who was of the Vanderbilts and also a competitor in these races, uh, was quoted as explaining that it was given to him basically for his own good and that his fellow competitors saw that race as perhaps his last attempt to lift the America's Cup. But as he said, it has been our duty to shut the door in his face. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially a consolation prize of you need to stop spending money on this. It's not getting you anywhere. <laughs> But it's nice that the top 1% looks out for each other. You know, you get worried about them sometimes. (laughs) So reading about blights, something I don't often do, I found that the blight that affected the the devastating Emily Mm. is not as much of a problem nowadays. And actually coffee around the world faces a huge problem in a coffee borer beetle. And it's an insect that is endemic to Africa, but has now through uh, global trade, migrated to South America, Hawaii, and basically every coffee-producing nation in the world, and has been associated with its own kind of blights and mass losses in coffee at those times. What's fascinating about this beetle is it actually bores into a coffee bean, lays its eggs, and then the eggs, as they hatch, the larvae crawl out, eating their way through the bean, which for any animal, including a human, like mass ratio, Mm -hmm. would be a toxic amount of caffeine. And so this beetle is, like, strangely adapted to living in a coffee bean and getting out of it. And it just comes out super it's energized. ready to go. <laughs> it is on. Really just ready for the day. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I have this image in my mind of a beetle just being like, Ugh, don't talk to me before I've bored through my bean. <laughs> <laughs> So, since our stories have, so far, centered around relatively common and well-known names for lesser-known people, or fungi in my case, our quiz will focus on the lesser-known names for commonly known people, places, and things. So, question number one. Robert Galbraith, uh, author of the crime fiction novels The Cuckoo's Calling, The Silkworm, and Career of Evil, is a pseudonym, or nom de plume, if you're French or pretentious, employed by what author? <laughs> One, two, three. J.K. Rowling. Okay. Boom. <laughs> That's, that is correct. Um, and that was figured out not long after the release of the first of those books. Book sales rose by 4,000%. Unsurprisingly. Didn't, didn't the lawyer who had been like tasked with keeping it secret like accidentally snitch to a family member who then told someone who told someone who got into the news and then he'd lost like a huge amount of money because it was a breach of contract? That that sounds correct. At the very least, the first part of that is true. And it was also revealed over Twitter. So it was this lawyer's wife. <laughs> oh, it was just... <laughs> tweeted and was like, actually, it's Jake. Oh, man, it's way worse than I thought. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, wow, you guys got that pretty quickly. All right. Number two. What city, which now has its original name, was briefly renamed as Petrograd in 1914 and then again as Leningrad in 1924? All right, so that's... And because of the Petrograd, I would imagine it's St. Petersburg. 
That is correct. Good, okay. Yeah. Um, but yes, originally named by Peter the Great in 1703. Um, he included Berg as a shout-out to his German relatives and allies, but then in 1914, with World War I, the city was renamed to Petrograd to get rid of the German part. All right, number three. What band, before settling on its final name, considered names such as Johnny and the Moondogs, the Nurk Twins, and the Silver Beats, among others? Ooh, the Silver Beats sounds familiar. This, okay, the Silver <laughs> the Silver Beats. Oh, is, oh Silver Beatles. It's the Beatles. The Beatles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Correct. So they first went by the Quarrymen, which the Quarrymen, yeah, before, just, precisely. Yeah. But they were also briefly the Moondogs. Um, at that point, oh, wow. uh, John, Paul, and George are already together for that. And then the Nurk Twins, literally only for two nights. Is this a John Nurk Twins? Nurk. N-E-R-K. The Nurk Twins. That's <laughs> yes. awesome. Wow. And that was just two nights of John and Paul playing a random set in Paul's cousin's bar to a crowd of like three people. <laughs> 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 and then variations of the Beatles, so including the Silver Beats, the Silver Beatles, and then finally, the Beatles. Next up, what symbol was originally named an octothorpe? by the workers at Bell Telephone Laboratories. Octothorpe. Oh, wait. Okay, so a symbol would be one that appears above the numbers. So, like, basically above the number. So, like, a pound sign would be my kind of now inclination. Ooh, one, two, three, four. We're going with hashtag pound sign. Hashtag pound sign. Hashtag correct. Yeah. Uh, the name first appears in a 1973 patent for the Touchtone Telephone Keypad. Thorpe was thought to come from the Olympic athlete Jim, Jim, Thorpe. Jim Thorpe, precisely, yeah. who was very big at the time, um, or the old English word for village. Um, and actually, when you think about the uh, pound sign or hashtag symbol, the middle square could be the village, then it would be surrounded by eight fields. So mm. that's the octo. Who wrote his earliest works under the pseudonym Bose? Most associated with his collection of short stories and essays, sketches by Bose. Has Ooh. nothing to do with the audio company. Uh, that's what I was going to say. Is it B-O-S-E? B-O-Z. Oh, B-O-Z. Oh. So he wrote short stories and essays, and he was ashamed of his identity. Only for his <laughs> earliest works. He was very well known. Can you give us a time period? Yes, uh, the mid to late 1800s. I can give a tangential fact about him. Okay, sure. He's known for being exceptionally verbose, and part of that was because some of his novels were published as installments, where he would be paid by the word. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure this is right, but I know Charles... I mean, a lot of people do this, but Charles Dickens He did the serial stuff. Yes, that's right. Is it Charles Dickens? It's Charles Dickens, yeah. But he adapted that nickname from one that was given to his brother, Augustus. Um, That nickname being Moses. And then when you pronounce Moses, I guess with a stuffy nose, it sounds like Moses. And then you have (laughs) Moses. That is lame. But I thought this was cute. Um, As an excerpt from the literary magazine Bentley's Miscellany about the reveal of his identity. Who the Dickens Bose could be puzzled many a learned elf till time unveiled the mystery and a Bose appeared as Dickens' self. And also, as a bonus question tied into our theme, who first used the phrase, what the dickens? Oh, Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah, really weirdly. Also, what's in a name? Question six. What country gets its name from Little Venice, a name given by Amerigo Vespucci upon seeing the stilt houses that dotted its coastline? Uh, I think we both know it. All right. Three, two, one. Venezuela. Correct. (laughs) Yes. That, that moniker was given during an expedition to Lake Maracaibo in 1499. Uh, little Venice in Italian is Veneziola, and in Spanish, Venezuela. Wow. So there you have it. What type of marine bird was known by 18th century British sailors as 
Arse feet. <laughs> so what? Arse feet? <laughs> Arse feet. <laughs> Something, so the feet are interesting? So it has more to do with placement, if that helps. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, they, they bring their feet up? <laughs> they, like, stand on one foot, possibly? It's not a flamingo. Oh, God, that was a flamingo. <laughs> Place. Interesting. But I, so. I, I like that line of thinking, though. Okay. I like that line of logic. Is it accurate, or do you like it? I, I like it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's Is meaningful. it a penguin? Yeah. So one of the earliest written records of uh, them being assigned this name actually comes from a book called A History of the Earth and Animated Nature. And just to kind of say a quote from that, this awkward position of the legs, which so unqualified them for living upon land, adapts them admirably for a residence in water. In that, the legs place behind the moving body, the ass. Push it <laughs> forward with great At the velocity. What? At the what, Emily? In case you needed that clarification. The and these birds, like Indian canoes, are the swiftest in the water by having their paddles in the rear. Our sailors, for this reason, give these birds the very homely but expressive name of but Arsfeet. expressive. Wow. But, uh, Last question. Okay, so Ooh, pressure's on. you guys know how much I love my Greek and Latin roots based on some sort of unpopular rounds that I've had in trivia. But um, <laughs> you never. <laughs> me never. But the question: the musician Michael Peter Balzari, who plays for a band whose species name is Capsicum annuum, he goes by what nickname, which itself is an insect of the order. Siphonoptera. So Not he goes unpacked. by the name Siphonoptera. Okay. So it's a bug name. Okay. Siphonoptera. So probably something with a uh, optera has wings. So okay. it could be a moth or a butterfly. Aptera. Oh, aptera. Ooh. So the band, uh, the band name also has a species name, which is Capsicum annuum. Hmm. Capsation. Red hot chili peppers. Oh. I'm trying to remember the, the bassist name. I'm thinking of The Edge, who's U2. I'm thinking of Slash, who is Guns N' Roses. I'm thinking of every other <laughs> I know, I can't, I can't think of it. Oh my god, what? This is the worst. This is like this is the trivia field. nightmare. Is that there's just this one person on your team what? who isn't there that night. <laughs> Who just knows about Red Hot Chili Peppers? But, okay, we know but, it's a bug. We know it's a bug, I know. too. And like, the thing is, we both know who <laughs> this is. The order also, the name, the order <coughs> name also has a clue in it. So you were correct with Aptera, but also think of the first half of it as well. Siphon. Siphon. It's a straw. Or, a, like, it pulls up water. Uh, Flee! It's Flee! That was the best feeling I've ever felt. Uh, I just hate how well oh we described God. it. I'm thinking about it. We were circling around that for so long. No, but that's great. Oh my God! Wow. If you've ever needed a reason to go to your local trivia night, it is for the sheer joy of that moment. That was excellent. That was excellent. Oh, we don't, done we didn't talk that out. Oh man! That yeah. Good that, that job, was Rob. Fun to watch. Way to go. <sighs> so Good yes, job, team. as you got capsicum annuum is the chili pepper, like capsaicin. There you go. Mm -hmm. And siphonoptera, siphon for a siphon. Ew. 
bloodsuckers and Aptero for not having wings. Uh, fun fact, this guy is also the voice of Donnie from the Wild Thornberries. Oh. <laughs> all right, well, that's all we've got for you this episode. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Uh, be sure to check out our social media presences at Fax Machine Pod on Twitter and Instagram and uh, at Fax Machine Podcast on Facebook. And we'll see you next time. Bye.